Welcome to Inspiring Futures. I'm your host, Ed Cotton. This is a podcast where we talk about the how, what, and why. We're off. Okay. Um, welcome to another episode of Inspiring Futures. Um, I'm delighted that my guest this morning and this afternoon over in London is Lucy Jameson of Uncommon Studio. Is that correct? Uncommon Studio? Is that how you call Uncommon it? Creative Studio. Yeah, Uncommon yeah. Creative Studio. <laughs> We'll talk about that, the, the naming nomenclature in a minute. Uh, but Lucy, do you want to take us through a little bit of your uh, career trajectory? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I went to Oxford University and I remember sitting in my second year um, thinking, or oh, actually it was coming to my third year, thinking, if I want to go to London and hang out with my boyfriend, I'd better get a job. Um, and I literally went through the career service and luckily advertising is A. Um, And I sort of thought that sounds quite interesting. I quite like the sound of that. And I went to a seminar and there was a lady there uh, from an agency called BMP, which was the agency that invented account planning along with JWT. And she was a planner and she described what her job was. And I thought, oh, that sounds absolutely much more me than account management. And so uh, I applied for jobs in the milk round. And very luckily, I got a job at BMP. So, um, so I was uh, there for nearly, or for about 19 years. So I went in as a grad trainee and ended up as global head of strategy and um, sat on the global exec and all of that stuff. So I am really unusual in that I was at one company for that length of time. But I loved it. And I did lots and lots of different jobs. And different regions and different clients and the, you know, the management changed and all that kind of stuff. So I didn't leave really until I felt I'd sort of hit a point where I wasn't really learning much more. Um, And then I was looking for a team, a a little crew that I could go and work with. And I met the guys at um, Gray, of which Nils, who is my current business partner, was one of them. And I really liked them and thought, okay, this could be good. So I went across to work at Gray and was both uh, CSO and CEO at different points. So I kind of made that jump as well into CEO-dom rather than just planner-dom, which was useful. Um, And then, you know, after a few years there, I think just lots of reasons, we decided it was time to do our own thing. And uh, that's when when we left. And then we had a year out of the industry before starting up Uncommon. So how long has Uncommon been in business for? We are uh, coming up to three years in September. So still still, still young, but we've grown fast from, you know, the three of us to, you know, we're around sort of 50, 60 people. It's amazing. It's incredible. (laughs) I'm a lot greyer now than I was then. Well, responsibility. Um, so let's go. Let's go backwards before we go forwards. Um, what did you read at Oxford? History. Okay, perfect. Which, for, which for I always think is a brilliant. You know, you have to have empathy. You have to figure out why people do what they do. What are all the big conditions? The small things. The little triggers. It's a yeah, great subject, and I loved it. And I think it's um, really what, invaluable because you you you. you focus pretty um, quickly when you're... Well, uh, yeah, although, I mean, I did early Italian Renaissance and stuff like that. I didn't do anything much beyond medieval history. So 
was pretty useless in that sense. But the ability to sift through loads and loads of information and put together an argument. Yeah. And we had to do, you know, three essays a week, each go to a tutor and argue your point. That is incredibly good training for what we do in advertising. Um, yep. I didn't realise that at the time, but yeah, it is. Couldn't be better training, really. Um, and, what, and can you explain, American listeners might not know what the milk round is. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, yeah, it's when, uh, you know, big employers go to the best universities, really, and in, in tends to be you know, Oxford and Cambridge and the Russell Group, and they go around and say, this is why this job is great. Come and join one of our graduate schemes. Um, so, yeah, so it, you're very lucky in that there are, you know, some formal ways into the industry, which I don't think are as clear nowadays as they were back then. And also back then, there weren't that many jobs you could do if you decided you wanted to do something a bit more creative and a bit less formal. You know, there weren't startup businesses, there wasn't technology, there wasn't Facebook. It was, you know, law, city, consultancy, accounting, or nothing much else. So advertising was one of the few things that you could kind of do that was a bit, a bit more creative. And did you, did you look beyond BMP or were you sold once they came in? That would... uh, um, no, I, I applied to, I think five or six places, three of whom were account planning jobs. I didn't get any interviews or didn't get past my first interviews to be an account manager. Um, it was pretty patently obvious. I think I would have been bad at that. Uh, whereas I got, um, you know, to the final round of interviews for all the, all the strategy jobs. So it's just interesting, isn't it? I was incredibly lucky that I happened to see that in the careers service and lucked out on kind of finding out about it and, and digging around a bit more. Yeah. And um, so you land at BMP and is the culture that, you know, you read about it being one of the founding members of the School of Account Planning. And is that is that in, embedded in the culture when you start? Yeah. I mean, it certainly was back then. I don't don't. I couldn't say whether it is now or not. I'm not sure it is so much. But, you know, we had three months training before we even began working on client business. I cannot imagine that happening in the industry now at all, which is kind of tragic. Uh, you know, when I worked with people like Les Burnett, um, you know, for years, I sat with econometricians as part of the business. Um, so I understood that side of the business. And in my, I think, second year, it, or I can't remember the second year, but one of my early years working there, I was working on the Meat and Livestock Commission, which is the you know conglomerate that looks after British meat. And it was during the BSE crisis, so the mad cow disease crisis. And I did, I think, 90 groups that year um, and helping them figure out what they should be doing on all kinds of stuff, not just the advertising, but you know, did they need to bring in quality assurance? What, what else could they do? all of that sort of stuff. So it was really good training in that sense in that I thoroughly understood both, I think, quant data and qual research and got an exposure to thinking about a brand and a business rather than just advertising. So yeah, we were lucky, I think, very lucky looking back at it. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea that, you, that, that you're actually, I always think of 
the 60s, late 60s, when account planning was founded as this, I, this moment in London where you had these two worlds colliding. You had pop culture, youth culture, and then you had sort of tradition. And there was this inflection point where you sort of, you, you sort of had to go out, get out there. If you didn't, it, if agencies stayed locked in the traditional world, they would have failed to grasp the magnitude of cultural change that was happening yeah. and their advertising would have suffered. And yeah, uh, and I, yeah, I think it is suffering at the moment because we're all stuck in our little bubbles in you know, the metropolitan elite as everybody points out. But yeah, I think that is a real issue in the industry. But also just, just as a planner rolling up your sleeves and getting out there and meeting people and talking to people and listening is such an important thing. Yeah, I mean, the two pitches we just finished last week, actually, we went out and did some Zoom research, chatted to people. We'd, you know, probably not as formal as we might once have done, mm -hmm. um, but just getting a sense for what people think, where yeah. your assumptions are right and wrong, um, where things can change, and just some of the questions you get to ask. Uh, you know, one of them was brilliant, actually, partly because it's a fascinating thing. You're doing it in people's houses in a way that you to can't see. normally do. Literally, somebody ran out of the, of the room to go and get a quote off his wall. And it was a, an, a, an amazing quote uh, from the Dalai Lama and went, this is so relevant to this situation. And that was really, I mean, it was lovely, but it was also really insightful about the particular topic we were talking about. So there's still some lovely ways of getting proper input from people, which, yeah, can't be overlooked. What I'm hearing right now is actually strategists have this unique opportunity because, you know, you could sort of, if you are a brand manager or a CMO and you've been doing it long enough you, and you've been to enough groups, you sort of, you sort of get into autopilot and, and you said, you know, you can't tell me anything new. I know exactly what's going on. And now the sort of train's been derailed and strategy planners are sort of needed more than ever. If, 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 if for people who really don't know what's going on from one day to the next or one week to the next, having that intelligence and being yeah. able, being able well, to... We, we all got it wrong on so many things, whether it was Brexit and you know, Trump or whatever, I think we all had a bit of a wake up call in that sense as well um, about whether or not we were really in touch with what was going on enough. Yeah. So I, I think that's something we're all trying to wrestle with at the moment, for sure. And a planner who I think one of the joys of being agency side rather than the client side is you get to work across so many different disciplines and you spot things happening in other places. And if you're stuck in a CMO and you come up through a vertical industry, then that's a, you know, that's a big problem. Um, so when you leave um, a culture like BMP after 19 years, <laughs> you go to a place called Gray that doesn't have the best reputation. Um, <laughs> and uh, they've assembled an exciting team and you're part of it that is quite, you're sort of throwing yourself into the deep end somewhat. 
did you feel? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was definitely a risk. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, there were bits of uh, DDB at the time, though, which were pretty dysfunctional. And so I kind of figured it was time for a change. And really, all I was looking for were the two or three people that were going to be my proper team. And did we have the same vision, even if we thought very differently? And, the, you know, the ways we approach things are very different because of the di different disciplines, but generally because we're different people with different backgrounds. But were we lined up with a vision of being able to turn it around and do something different and new? And that sort of, that was what I was looking for. And luckily that's what happened. Doesn't always, it's always tough, isn't it? You, you make a bit of a leap in the dark when you meet people two or three times and then you kind of take a flyer. Luckily for me, it was, it was a, a good flyer. <laughs> you, you guys were tremendously successful. As a yeah, I mean, it was a turnaround story that then let us go and leave and set up our own thing. And, you, and what do you owe that? success to the chemistry of the team that, that you guys yeah I think the chemistry of the team hard work actually which I know is um you know I think all of us had something to prove so we probably worked disproportionately hard and then we're not hierarchical at all it was a very like it was genuinely we used to talk about open a lot and it was a very open culture and so I think that makes you fast and, you know, you get 20 different people's opinions on something like that. And then that means you can synthesize and work from there. If it's just you sitting in a corner, it can take you days to get to that speed. So um, I think it meant we were fast and we were so determined for it to be great work and great, great brands that actually that helped as well. There was no tolerance for average. I think what you just said earlier on about this idea of... of um swarming um, around ideas is, is a big shift for planners because I think you and I grew up at a time when the planner was the guru, uh, the smartest girl or guy in the room who was expected to pontificate and be intellectual and be able to mm. work their way through problems uh, to get to the answer. And they were looked upon to be that person, which was an immensely high pressure. Yeah, yeah. I think it had started to change, though, because certainly at DDB, we had tribal DDB, which was our digital crew. We had a social crew. We had our econometrics team. So we'd already started to have these different specialists. And you knew that if you were going to get the best job done on a big brand like VW or whatever, you were going to have to find a way of bringing that crew together um, and getting all those disparate opinions and actually listening and properly understanding each discipline. So I feel like, you know, that's just a, a reflection of the increased complexity of the whole marketing landscape versus, you know, when I joined and it was effectively, oh, do some TV or some print, you know, there wasn't a lot else. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, absolutely. And I think anyone who thinks you can do it all on your own now is, is sadly mistaken. But I think that um, brings up the, the skill of facilitation. Yeah. The, that is, becomes really critical. The big, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, absolutely. And it's fascinating, isn't it? Those sort of skills I think we all thought were quite old fashioned, the, the skills you use in qual research. Yeah, and, and yet they are so important in everything. Okay, um, 
So we, talked, we were talking about facilitation. Um, let's talk about um, leaving Gray. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I guess we'd started to do some quite interesting things. We'd started to do some building products. We created something called um, Volvo Life Paint, which was a product, a paint spray that lights up in car headlights. Um, that you can spray on if you're cycling. So it was about cycle safety. And it had been phenomenally successful, um, but it had taken us about two years to get that through the system, both to persuade the client and um, also to persuade WPP to take the money in that way. Um, we ended up getting a pound for every can sold. Uh, and it struck us that, you know, it was a bit crazy. We're actually quite good at this. We understand where there's a need and we understand branding. It would be fun to be able to do a bit more of that. And I think you know that coupled with the sense that we were not always going to choose which clients we might want to work with, um, and also you know, culture is a massively important to us, and we used to talk a lot about culture, but then when it came to the crunch, we couldn't make the decision about whether or not we were going to, you know, give somebody some extra money or promote them or you know any of those kind of things because fundamentally it was not in our gift. It came back down to what somebody within WPP thought, whether there was a pay freeze or whatever. And I think we just got increasingly uncomfortable that uh, those two things were not really always very well aligned, our views on culture and uh, some of WPP's views. And um, so I think we felt the tension and we felt the tension on clients. And on a personal level, I'd had a kid and I kind of really wanted to work on stuff that I thought was important, uh, not on you know, whatever, whatever came our way, more, more, more. Um, so I, I think those two fought with each other a bit as well. So how, how did, um, you knew you wanted to do something, but how did you know the person you wanted to do that with was someone you were working with? Well, uh, it's, uh, you know, I'd worked with Nils uh, for ever since I arrived at Grey and then Natalie for a bit long, a bit, you know, she joined a little bit later. Um, and I think... You know, you just get to a point where I think, A, you know how people think and you know their strengths and weaknesses and you just sort of think, this is great, it works. And also, B, I think, I think I'd always sort of wanted to do it at some point. And so I'd always had in the back of my head, and I think I'd probably early on had that conversation, oh, at some stage I'd love to do my own thing. And, you know, it sort of felt like if I didn't do it now, I was never going to do it. So that was it. <laughs> um, and you had a child. And yeah. Had a child. So you're now going <laughs> to, you're making your life, it's already become slightly more complicated, more complicated. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you were ready for it. Yeah. And, right. I mean. And you, so you asked to leave and they said, you can leave, but you can't work. Yeah, that's right. So um, we had complicated contracts at WPP. And so, uh, you know, we were paid, I was paid six months notice, but I couldn't work for another six months in the industry. Um, and Nils was similar. Um, so, yeah, and, and it's a smart move on their point because it is a big deterrent. Lots of people are not going to do what we did. You have to be pretty confident and slightly mad to decide you're going to leave a very big job and not be paid for a year um 
But the upside of that was, I think we all did lots of different things. And if we'd been able to start straight away, we'd have probably started Grey Mark II or DDB Mark II Uncommon, you know, it wouldn't have happened in quite the way it has. Um, and it was that year out that gave us, I think, a chance to go and uh, explore different things, learn from different companies and um, really think hard about what we wanted to make. So what, what did you actually do for the, for the year? So for the first six months, I literally was not allowed to do anything. So I became a full-time stay-at-home mum, which actually my daughter loved. Um, and then for the second six months, I did lots of stuff. I worked for charities. I went and interned at Facebook in their creative shop. And because I just wanted to understand startups really better from that side. And I also went and um, uh, mentored at Weira, which was Telefonica's incubator. And, um, and I worked in media as well. So all of those just gave you a sort of Niles, different- Niles did something, he didn't, he do, didn't he start off his own thing? Yeah, well, he started um, Halo, which is our coffee brand. Yeah, um, so that was, a, it's like a Nespresso, kind of alternative to Nespresso capsules, but they're fully compostable. Yeah. Yeah. So they don't uh, end up, you know, 13,000 in a landfill every minute. Yeah. So, so when did you guys sit down? I mean, were you doing it all the time, like working out what this? We were not allowed to speak to each other, literally. Not for the first six months or so. No. Um, No, the WPP contracts are tough. And if they think you're preparing for a new business, that is it. You cannot. So we literally had to put it on hold and go, okay, not until we're actually allowed to. Um, so, yeah. So, so, so six months are up. You can finally talk to each other. Well, sort of roughly, yeah. It was, yeah there, there was some complexity around there. But when we were finally allowed to talk to each other, um, yeah, we did. Um, and uh, we probably came down here actually and, uh, you know, spent a couple of days just figuring out what we thought was important, putting our deck together. Um, and then, you know, when we were at sort of just about officially open, um, which was September, but we'd sort of, we'd been allowed to officially open a month earlier. We spent that month really going around chatting to clients um, and talking to people about our proposition, fine tuning things you know, getting everything ready to go, I guess. Did you have people already who wanted to work with you? Well, that was what was really interesting. We had multiple people who said, oh, yeah, we'll, we really want to be your first client. Um, but what is very clear is that most of them were working in big companies. And it wasn't until we actually got our first bit of work out that those people could then come and say, so I know you're real now. I can convince everyone in my organisation you're real. Yeah. Shall we have a chat? Um, so those first, you know, the first few months where you're just trying to get your first big project off the ground so you've got something to show, that's quite terrifying. <laughs> and, um, and we were very lucky with our first project because our first project embodied everything we wanted it to. Um, so it was for an energy company who'd not done anything particularly interesting and we kind of helped convince them and worked on this idea of really getting people to switch to a renewable tariff. So, um, so and it was a punchy piece of work. Um, so not only was it kind of values led, it was quite transformational for them 
and it was it was a piece of work that people noticed. So it did exactly what we'd hoped it would do um, and what we'd set out to do, which was really, we were very clear, we only really wanted to work on things that we felt could become uncommon brands um, rather than just, you know, everyday brands. So what, what, what's the philosophy of uncommon? What does it, what does it, what does it mean? So, I mean, three things, but probably the first and most important was, as I say, I think we have a view on um, what makes an uncommon brand. Um, and in our view, you know, they have to fix a real problem in the world. That's the first and most important part of it. And the second bit is they've got to be famous. Um, so two quite kind of very clear criteria. So they do have to have a bit more of a purpose to them. Um, and uh, so that was something we set out right from the word go. And we always had this uh, quote from the salesman that the, the woods are burning um, and there's a big blaze going on around us. And I think we, we found that really inspiring, the sense that there are lots of problems, lots of things to fix, lots of woods burning, not just in our, in our industry, but kind of everywhere. And that if you can locate a brand to actually answer some of those problems, then you can kind of really supercharge it very fast. Um, so we always wanted to work with brands like that. And then the second bit really was that we would do some of our own brands. So things like the Halo Coffee, uh, the Compostable Coffee. We just thought, for example, candles, um, which smell like the places you're missing. So like festivals, like the pub, like cinema, and the proceeds of that go to the hospitality charity. So um, all the people who've you know, lost their jobs in, in pubs and bars and stuff like that. So we like actually making things, products to ourselves, and also I think that gives you a really good insight into, you know, how it, how what, what your clients are going through. You do have to ask yourself if it was my brand, what would I do? Would I spend that money? Would I do it that way? And I think having been through that experience yourself is, is super valuable. And then I guess the the last bit of it was just having a more fluid model. Um, so we have what we call uncommon minds. They're planners and strategy people around the world. We run global projects. We've kind of, um, you know, we've brought in to help us out or we brought in, you know, music specialists or youth specialists or whatever. It doesn't sound revolutionary, but it is that sense that actually networks just have to, you know, fill a problem with the people they've got. And we'll go and find who we think is the right person to help us on any project which I think makes for a better quality of work and much faster. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you, did you do a talk at the APG about sort of like agile planning or something along probably. the line? Probably, yeah, something, yeah. It's probably speed, actually, which we think is a really valuable, you know, it's not just valuable for being fast, it's valuable for lots of other things as well, I think. What's your thought? Is it is your thought to get to an idea really quickly? Yeah, you get to an idea quicker if you've got the right people in the room. Um, and if you get to an idea quicker, then you can make it work far harder across everything, make it, you know, work internally, externally, build products off it, do whatever you need to. But I think that speed of responding to things is massively important. I mean, we... I've done a lot of work actually with ITV, who's the, the largest commercial broadcaster in the UK, 
over um, coronavirus, a big kind of mental health campaign that we actually launched last year, but we brought back, and we brought back a big thing within four days, um, you know, from first presenting that idea to getting it through the organisation to getting Anton Deck, who are celebs in the UK, to record something on their last day in the studio. And actually your speed of being able to do that kind of stuff really matters. Um, it, it's a massive competitive advantage. Yeah. Um, and does, does, does it mean that you turn down clients because they don't meet your purposeful standards? Yep. yep. <laughs> Lots, actually. And I think that's been one of the things we have grown really fast. But, you know, we're still involved in everything. Um, and everything we do is something else we don't do. So we think long and hard about whether they're our kind of brand and then also whether or not they share our ambition. So I, I think we're very much wired that fame is a really important bit as well as fixing the problem. And if the client doesn't fix the problem and then doesn't get that fame is really important, they're not for us. But fortunately, I think increasingly people recognize both of those things. Um, so yeah. Do those do those organizations share characteristics? You know, is it is it is no, it not not really. Uh, well, so one thing I would say is we often get people in a moment of change. So whether that is they've got a new CEO or CMO, quite a few of our organizations, our clients come in like that. Carolyn, then Carolyn McCall at ITV was the new CEO there. Tanya Steele at World Wildlife Fund, new CEO. So we get quite a lot like that. And then we get quite a lot at the smaller scale who are, you know, scale-ups or, or startups um, who are just at that level where they've been playing around with performance marketing for a while. And that they kind of suddenly realize they've got to take the next step if they're going to grow any further. So those tend to be, I guess, the two quite different ends of the spectrum that come to us but they're both very much characterized by wanting to make a change and wanting to do things bigger and better um, rather than just wanting incremental, which often used to be the, you know, some of those clients would definitely come through our door in previous agencies. So do, do you see the strategist role there? Um, do, do you find that the clients know the journey of transformation that they need to take or they know what the issues are? Um, and then you just have to illuminate them, or are you just are you just saying a lot of these guys know they need to change, they just don't know what the change is? The real mix, actually. Um, some of them, yeah, it is just shining a light on something obvious um, and going, let's do that. You kind of know you should, so let's just do it. Sometimes it literally is we need to go away and do a load of stakeholder interviews and understand everyone, you know, all the different crew within that company, um, what their agenda is and sift through that and really help figure out where it could go. That was certainly much more the case with ITV. They had Bain in doing their business strategy and us helping them figure out their brand strategy. So it really was talking to everyone within that organization from you know, HR to digital to you know, commissioning and really understanding what was special about it and, and what we could bring to the fore, what was the DNA that hadn't really been spoken about. You're talking about um, the clients who know they need to transform and then some who need more convincing. Um, mm. And you were talking about, you know, sometimes you have to, 
it's a process where you have to talk to the stakeholders and sometimes it's more in people know and they know what they need to yeah. do yeah i mean so habito is a client we've worked with a lot which is an ai mortgage broker and we'd worked with um it was a new cmo who came in and we'd worked with her before and um you know, she, I think, knew the power of creativity. She also knew all the data around the importance of fame and the importance of balancing, um, you know, your activation and performance with your brand and what the right split should be. So working with her, we helped, you know, her convince you know, everyone else in that organisation, which obviously it's an AI mortgage broker. They're very data-driven. Um, but Daniel, the founder, really also... You know, is is intuitive along with being a kind of maths geek he's also a musician so um we sold them this idea of hell or habito and um crazy jimbo phillips skate inspired art and things like um you know animated people having their hearts ripped out through the stress of getting a mortgage um so it was a really punchy campaign but again based off a really simple truth Again, which we found in groups, people found getting a mortgage is utterly hellish. Stressful, it feels like you're chucking money away, it's confusing, there's too much jargon. And so we just really dramatised the pain points, which was the hell, and positioned Habito as the antidote. So that was actually a really super intuitive process. Um, you know, that was a quick couple of weeks. We need something that's super branded. It's going to be famous and it will drive name recognition so that we don't have to spend as much money on, um, you know, AdWords. Um, and I think we did, again, a couple of groups just to kind of check in where we're going loopy. And the response was a bit like, wow, that's quite full on. <laughs> but it was clearly based on the truth. Um, so off we went. But yeah, yeah that was that's um, a really, that's a sort of really great, great example. Yeah, that's a great example. I mean, that's where that's where you just look at the category and you go, no one, no one has the guts to tell the truth here in a in a compelling way. It's just it's just the same old, same old, and everyone's disappearing into sameness. Where yeah, if you have if you have the bravery and you can, you know, and you know, you're using culture and you're using art. Which is just a really interesting way of of, of standing out in a, in a category that financial services is just so in need of brave creative that just doesn't really exist, you know. Yeah, it's a really boring category. It's low interest. It's confusing. It's complicated. All the brands think trust is the most important thing. So, but their definition of trust is then to just do nice cozy apps. And when everybody else is doing nice, cozy ads, there's a massive opportunity for whoever is brave enough to, to do something different and yeah. um, have it so with that client. So good on them. And it's really worked. I mean, they've tripled in size and their acquisition costs have gone down by 75%. So, you know, um, it's been powerful. So, so when, you, when you think about, um, you know, your role as a strategy leader as a role, you know, within your company and you're bringing on talent, you're bringing on strategy talent. Um, do you feel you find the people who you just get what you want and that's why they come work with you? Or do you feel this, you have to, 
is there a is there a way do you want people to be themselves bring themselves or do you want to an un, 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 is there an uncommon approach to strategy that you want to make sure that everyone who works with you in the team brings to the table no i mean i all the way through i've always wanted people who thought differently than me because you know i think one way and it's great if other people think differently because you know that covers my blind spots of which I have many. So, um, so it, you know, that's absolutely fundamental. I want people to be intuitive. I want people to be bright. I want people to be able to argue a case. And I want people to love, you know, great brands and try to make a difference with those brands. Um, and we don't have that many people. So it is a high pressure environment in the sense that, you know, everybody has to contribute unlike I think in big agencies where honestly I think there are still quite a lot of passengers um, I think you know we are probably demanding in that sense um, but no and, and I in a weird way I don't necessarily just I think because I was a CEO for a while and then have moved the, across back to strategy but because you're running a business I sort of um yeah, I, I sort of don't just see my role within strategy, actually, it's, which I think is important. I think it's also about understanding the business and how we make money and understanding where we think there are opportunities, which um, sometimes I think when you go through doing it in a very perfectionist, purist strategy way, um, it can be, uh, I guess, just slow things down. And sometimes I think great strategy is about figuring out where the opportunity is quite fast. And then for sure, going out and doing your due diligence and checking things off. But, you know, I like people who have an intuitive sense of something uh, as well. Yeah. And so um, do you, what's, what's the, what percentage of new business for you is going through consultants? And which, what percentage is you just... Oh. Um, probably a lot higher than it was to begin with. Um, almost all of our first business didn't come through consultants. Uh, ITV yeah. didn't come through consultants, which was our first big bit of business. Ovo, uh, they read about us when we launched and um, got in touch. Uh, lots of our lots of our first clients, uh, you know, were ex-agency people. I think there's an increasing number of people who are yep. client side who are ex-agency. Um, and you know they were excited to see what we could do so I don't think um, as many nearly as many were coming through consultants uh, as had been the case at a big agency um, I think that's probably changing a little bit I think certainly when it's a big bit of business often I think uh, clients feel they need to have the due diligence of a pitch and a consultant running it to, to kind of have due process so I think that changes a bit, but um, I would say two or three of the big bits of business we've won in the last year or so uh, still have very much come through. Oh, we've had a quick consultant. We've had a chat with them, and but it might be a, a mate who's ex-agency rather than a formal intermediary process. So it still very often comes that way, I think. And what, what do you think about your next steps as a business i mean you're three years old you're 60 people is it is it just continuing to grow or and what does that growth look like is it is it global growth is it 
UK focused? Mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you see the future of the Uncommon brand? Well, we definitely will continue to grow globally, whether that means we have to have boots on the ground at what stage, I'm not sure yet, but we already run two or three bits of business globally. Um, and we work with planners and strategy people and other people around the world to, to make that happen. I think that will continue to scale. We're also looking at um, diversifying in that I think we want to build what you need as a modern brand today. So performance marketing is important, I think, as a next step. PR, really critical. At some point, we'd probably like to have influencer in some way, shape or form. And then the other thing we really want to double down on is building our own brand. So um, we're working on something in that space at the moment. Um, because I think we all feel like, you know, having worked in incubators and accelerators, it's very clear that many, many brands just start with a kind of business model and a product person, whether that be a tech person or a finance person. Almost none of them start with brand, but the ones who start with a proper understanding of brand, who they're for, why they're different, why they're better, and who package and wrap that. I mean, they accelerate so much quicker than the brands who don't have that. And I think we've seen how little of understanding of that there is in, in that startup ecosystem. So to have um, more kind of uh, growth in that area, I think is exciting too. So that's something. Yeah, that I, think, I think that's really, it's just weird to me. I wrote something that very few people <laughs> saw because it was just a little newsletter. Um, but I'm, I was fascinated with the Museum of Ice Cream, which is obviously a, non-COVID experience. I mean, it's like, you know, it, it's not doing very well right now because you can't go to a museum or you can't go to an experience. Um, but as of December last year, it had a $280 million valuation, which may be a little high. Um, but basically it was created by a designer, trend analyst, um, and some creative people and a business person. Um, and I just scratch my head and I go, how come agencies who have this talent in-house have not been able to go to the money people and get funding for ideas? It just, it just it baffles me that yeah. there is that ambition because there's plenty of money around. And um, yeah. we, are, we, are, we pride ourselves as being in the ideas business. And there's very, very few examples of anyone who's gone and got funding for ideas. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I would say two things. One, we're not brilliant on the money thing. Although I think when we do get in front of people, they're incredibly impressed because our pitch decks are so much better than the average pitch deck I've seen. Um, but the truth is as well that we don't have any sector expertise very often. So certainly, you know, with our coffee business, I mean, it was a shambles to begin with, to be brutally honest. Yeah. Um, you know, the encapsulation machines didn't work properly. So failure rate was higher than it should have been not than, and that higher than an espresso was and then we were stuck on a coffee mountain at one point <laughs> we had to move the business and the, the whole encapsulation process over to the UK from Italy so I mean I think our knowledge of it and and general sense is that we have to then find brilliant sector experts in any sector to work with us um, so whether we co-create stuff or whether we do collabs 
Um, but yeah, I, th I absolutely agree with you. I think there's a massive amount of opportunity there, but we are only good at one of the bits of maybe three bits, you know, the, we're, I think, good at the idea. We're not very good at the logistics. Um, and we're also not terribly good at, at, at the money. I don't think we don't think the money is as complicated. It's just we're not as familiar with the ways it works. So, you know. I mean, there is obviously there is obviously options for you. You can go and work with the money guys who, who have all these ventures and be the brand yeah. part of that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, I think definitely, you know, we've been toying with what the right business model for us is and the right way we scale it. And we'll probably hopefully be announcing something in the next sort of six months or so. But we um, are excited to do more in that space for sure. Um, and I think, you know, having more brands that actually do fix problems in the world can only be a good thing. Yeah, I mean, um, just going back, you mentioned the life paint, the Volvo life paint. Mm -hmm. you, got, you got a compensation agreement that was very mm. unusual. Is that something you're trying to bake? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, so you know, certainly some, some, I mean, we've looked at lots of different ways, whether it be equity or some kind of... Um, you know, rev share deal rather than just, you know, the classic PRPs, uh, the payment by results that kind of exist in, in advertising overall. So for sure, we've looked at those kind of different models with, with stuff we've done. Um, and, and that was, you know, how that came about was it was a Swedish startup that one of the creative teams discovered um, who had this kind of paint thing, but they hadn't really thought about its applications it originally. Uh, it came from something that they used to spray on, I think, um, elk and reindeer, because that's one of the biggest causes of road accidents um, in, in Scandinavia is uh, cars driving into, you know, uh, elk and reindeer and stuff like that. So they used to spray this stuff that lit up into the car headlights onto the, um, onto the animals. Um, and it was really the creative team who thought, hold on a minute, that's brilliant for cycling. And literally got in touch with them and kind of went, look, do you think, is there something you could do that would go on material or onto bike frames or whatever? And so we worked with them to kind of adapt it and uh, brand it for Volvo. So that was an unusual thing in that it was definitely, you know, we, instead of our time, that's what we got, how we got paid. So it was a gamble and it was, that was why it was difficult to do within a holding company because holding companies want advertising agencies are the kind of cash cow bit of their, you know, cash cow bit of their portfolio. The experimentation and innovation is elsewhere and they just want kind of solid recurring revenues from, from the ad agencies, to be honest. So it doesn't make them the best, I think, uh, hotbeds for innovation. It makes it harder. Yeah. So, um... Just trying to think if I'm going to miss any regret missing any <laughs> questions um, while while you're while you're here. Um, we've covered we've covered a lot. Oh yeah, I, I guess I, I guess I wanted to go back to your get your thoughts on brand. I mean, having you know joined BMP and 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 grown up in a world where where we were told to embrace brand and there were companies who used to value brand and put in tangible values on, in, in the books and stuff like that. What's, what's your thought on the state of brands right now? I mean, I, I just wonder and worry whether 
it's it's as people care as much as they used to and what mm. what have we lost sight of the value of brands have they become just so ubiquitous that um you know that the the, the the people don't pay much attention in in terms of the clients to and also the longevity of clients at client companies you know in is actually a matter of months that they don't have brand responsibility over a long term that um mm. this is changing and i wondered if you thought there was need for a sort of a reinvigoration of the importance of brand Yes, yeah, so I think there's two things going on there, aren't there? There's for sure the sense of short-termism, which I don't think is just in advertising or brands. It's in pretty much every sector, whether it's government or infrastructure or, frankly, pretty much anything. So I think that is a you know a general issue for sure, and it affects brands particularly. And I also think there's a sense where, you know, when I started in the business, there was no internet and you couldn't look at reviews and you couldn't get a sense of, product quality it was brand that was a bigger signal than anything else um, because there weren't as many signals about the quality of something now I think there are more signals um, having said that I think there is so much choice and that's the thing that has changed radically since I started in the industry and amidst choice brands are still brilliant ways to navigate things um, and so a great brand helps you navigate something that's very complicated. Um, and so I think anyone who thinks, you know, Scott Galloway talks about the fact they're redundant now, I don't buy that at all. Um, I actually think that in lots of places, they're still really, really important as a navigation tool um, and really important in terms of driving innovation too. So um, I, I think, yeah, I think we have not done a good job of uh, selling the value of them. I certainly don't think we've done a good job of getting you know, VCs or private equity or the city to understand them. They are hard, they're less, um, you know, they're less quantifiable, uh, although they are quantifiable, they are harder and, and more nuanced. And that's why I think they're really fascinating to work on, to be honest. Um, but I think that's also why we haven't done such a great job of, of, of housing their value. But it's patently obvious, you know, that there is a massive value between, you know, whether it is the classic one everyone talks about, Coca-Cola, you know, some sort of slightly brown water or Coca-Cola. There's a massive value and that's the brand. Yeah. And that's true in pretty much any sector. I mean, and then you could, you could argue that, um, you know, other factors such as the, the, multi, the, the multiple, um, exponential multiplication of touch points um, demanding a certain level of consistency because you're everywhere mm -hmm. now. That you could also argue purpose has just become, I know it's a buzzword, but it's become increasingly important and then um, you could argue your internal brand, you know, your, your, um, mm -hmm. from your talent perspective, how you're going to hire, retain people yep. um, without yep. a strong brand to do it. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, all, all the sort of, um, you know, all the work that's been done on that autonomy, mastery, purpose. I mean, those are the things that motivate people. And um, I'm, 
you know, yes, I think purpose has been a complicated word very often. Uh, it's been misused and all the rest of it. But I think having a clear view of what you're there to do and what problem you're there to solve is incredibly motivating for people. I don't think they are motivated just by money. Um, they're motivated by more than that. And that's what purpose at its best does, both internally and externally. But you have to make sure it's not just a marketing thing. It has to be kind of right through every line of the business. Otherwise, it, it, it is just purpose washing. Yeah, I think that's great. One final question. I promise this is the last one. Um, <laughs> advice to a young aspiring planner who's 24, 23, want, wants to be a planner, uh, what, what are you, and that opportunities are, are thin on the ground. Uh, what, are these, mm. what do these folks have to do to, to stand out, to get noticed, to, 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 to secure something um, in today's environment? Yeah, um, so first thing is to get in touch because at some point again we will be hiring. We may not be right now, but at some point we will be and we're always on the lookout for good brains. Um, I, I mean, I think, yes, that absolutely bright, able to argue your case, do your homework. It's not hard to actually learn about the industry if you go and read up about it, but that makes a huge amount of difference and I'm consistently surprised how few people actually have done their homework that sounds mm. awful but it is yep. true and there is so much written about the industry and so many great blogs and you know whatever else podcasts like this people can listen to so there's a lot of homework you can do and then um we always had a thing we used to look at you know when I started in the business it was always what's that weird thing that person's done <laughs> um what's that odd thing what's that odd thing that just shows they look at the world in a slightly different way uh, because I think that is something we're always looking for. Somebody who has a slightly odd take on the world that you wouldn't have thought of before. Um, so uh, somebody always used to say to me, planners are broken people. I think that's probably a bit harsh. But that ability to look at things in a slightly different way, I think, is what sets great planners apart. Um, so having something about your CV or something you've gone and done that is a bit weird, some that shows an element of curiosity about how the world works and a sense of difference, that I think is really important. Yeah, I, I just give you an example of that. It's a really great point. I, I think I remember interviewing a prospective planner and she'd been a creative, she wanted to get into planning and I couldn't, I couldn't find that thing, you know, what you're talking about. Then I looked at the bottom of her resume. The bottom of her interests said, member of the US women's Olympic snowboarding team. I was like, why is this buried here? Mm. You know? Yeah, what? exactly. I mean, I would say the same thing. Weirdly, my CV, I had um, Mahjong player. Um, yeah. And Mahjong is not a big game in England. It's just not very well known. Um, and again, I had a really long conversation in one of my first interviews about why do you like that? What's the deal with it? What's, what, why did you pick it up? What's, you know, what's interesting about it? And it is always something like that, that just people can have a conversation about something they didn't know about that makes yeah. them see something fresh. Yeah, I agree. 
All right. I've taken enough of your time and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. That was very illuminating and interesting. Thank you. That's an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed it. I hope the sound was okay too in the end. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm, sure we'll, I'm sure we'll make it make it all work. I'll let you know when uh, when I put it up live. Um, but thanks again for happening in your time. Really appreciate it. No, that's a pleasure. Thank you. I enjoyed it. It was fun. Yeah, thank you. All right. Bye. This is your host, Ed Cotton. Thank you so much for listening to Inspiring Futures. Until next time.